welcome to Board Game Binge. The place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Josh Roberts, co-founder of Very Special Games and co-creator of their newest Kickstarter game, Tiny Laser Heist. Josh, welcome to the binge. How are you doing, sir? Well, thanks. Thanks for having me, James. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's great to have you, man. Every time I see games like this, I just get it just brings me right back to when I was a kid. It really does. Uh, any kind of tactile dexterity type games uh, where everyone in the room is just screaming and throwing the pieces around. It's just, oh man, it just gets me, uh, gets me pumped. So I'm definitely looking forward to getting into this game. This is, uh, you and I are just meeting. Uh, so for the first time, we haven't known each other before this. Hopefully we'll be longer term friends after this. Uh, sure. Let's let's start off with kind of the history of very special games. Now there's uh, Evan, I guess, is your business partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Evan Katz. Uh, he and I used to work at a growth strategy and innovation consulting firm in Memphis, Tennessee, together. Um, we got our start about four and a half years ago when we dreamt up our first game, Charity Party, um, basically over lunch one day in the office. Um, we literally had the idea in the morning and had drawn it up on sticky notes by lunchtime, played it in the conference room with some coworkers and interns. Um, and it was fun enough that we were like, there's something here. Uh, but still, you know, didn't have any, uh, you know, ambitions to be board game creators at that point. But we thought it might be interesting to, you know, take it to the next step uh, to learn more about manufacturing and marketing and Kickstarters. Uh, in case it became ap- applicable skills that we could take to some of our client work. Um, and, you know, one thing led to another. Charity Party did better than we expected on Kickstarter. And then we had to produce it. We had to learn how to get inventory in from China. And we had to learn how to get it warehoused and fulfilled and all that stuff. And uh, to this day, Charity Party still does some pretty good business for us. Uh, so that's that's kind of the genesis of it. And uh, we're on our our seventh unique title at this point with Tiny oh, Lizard. nice. So, like, it, it. So you're just in the conference room. You just decided to come up with a game. Like, had you guys been gaming before? Then, like, were you kind of, you know, friends were kind of gaming on the side, and then that kind of then led into okay, let's start talking about some ideas, or like, how did that game come about? Yeah, um, I, I've played games my whole life. Evans played games his whole life. Um, so, kind of a through line for both of us, um, just socially and with family. Uh, but he and I, you know, besides being friendly in the office um, and going to lunch from time to time, we weren't like friends outside of work. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, it was quite literally. He he told me about a conversation he had had with uh, a friend the night before that day at the office and was like, um, do you think there's a direct correlation between somebody's age and how much they're willing to spend on a steak dinner? So like you're 20 years old, your career's not really mm. off to the races just yet. Maybe, you know, the Applebee's $20 certainly deals the best you're going to do. Uh, but then, you know, you get into your, your sixties and you've had a good career and now the whole world's your oyster and now you're willing to spend, you know, $60 on a, on a filet, um, at a nice steakhouse. And I was like, well, sure, maybe there's a correlation there. And he said, do you think we could turn that idea into a game? Um, I was like, oh, uh, maybe that's interesting. So we kind of just started drawing up, uh, on sticky notes, um, x axes um of of varying silliness mm. uh one of my favorites that i remember that we, we put kind of an overwhelming amount of thought into was uh for superheroes the spectrum was started at batman um and went to superman 
and we ordered that X axis by, you know, Batman's just a dude um, who With has money. a bunch of money and some gadgets, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but he's, he's just a, a, a human of earth. Um, and then you've got Spider-Man who started as a human of earth, but, but got these superpowers. Then you get up to Superman who he's from another planet and he's got these superpowers. Um, anyway, so there's a very valid, you know, start here, go to here, X axis. Uh, we did a bunch of those. Um, and then we did a bunch of Y axes, um, you know, that were, were various assumptions we made on how you might label that X axis based on what the trend line was. Um, but the, the earliest iterations of Charty Party, uh, the players actually drew their trend line, um, mm. which was interesting, but it's, it's horrible for a game um, because it slows it down dramatically because people, um, you know, have to look at this new trend line every time and kind of understand what's happening with the chart. And if the person doesn't draw the trend line right, like the jokes, maybe not so good. Um, so we kind of ditched that mechanic pretty quickly um, and and went ahead and installed the trend line on them. Uh, but yeah, we had we had a workable prototype within hours of having that first conversation about the correlation between your age and state there. That's amazing. And then when did you guys turn this into like a company? So very special game. So where did you get the, how did you guys land on that name? And is there a story <laughs> behind that or? Uh, yeah, a little bit. So the first several years um, of our of our business, we were just Charty Party LLC. Mm. Uh, you know, because Evan had done some startups, I'd done some startups, and because we consulted on enough stuff, um, we founded our LLC very early in the process. Just we understood the tax implications and uh, the exposure personally if you didn't have an LLC. Uh, but after a few years in business, and especially when um, our game puns of anarchy started taking off a little bit. Um, we started to recognize that, you know, we didn't necessarily want retailers and distributors and other potential partners just associating us with Charty Party. Um, and if that was our company name, that was always going to happen. Um, so uh, I, I wish there was a better story about how we came up with Evan and Josh's very special games company. Um, but, you know, literally Evan pitched it to me one morning um, and he was like, I think this is hilarious. Um, just let me spit it out and see what you think. Um, and, you know, if you if you look at uh, all due respect to our, our colleagues in the business, if you look across the company names of um, the games that are on a shelf at Target, for example, um, yep they're a lot alike. Uh, mm. And I, so when he, when he spit out Evan and Josh's very special games company, I, I kind of got on board quickly with, this is very different. It's ridiculous. Um, and I think, you know, people are going to remember who we are and who our company is um, as a result of this kind of off, off the beaten path sort of name. Yeah. It's got a cool logo too. I like the, uh, the, the mm. big, uh, what do you call those? The big wheel bicycles or whatever. Yeah. The, the it's called line. a penny farthing bicycle. That's what <laughs> um, yeah, so the the woman who designed our logo, um, one of the things we you know we were like the brand is we try to deliver joy to people and it's it's kind of ridiculous. So we we looked at a lot of trucks and spaceships and kind of various vehicles carrying packages, um, but then she came, she tried this penny farthing bicycle and we we're like, oh, that's that's the exact right amount of ridiculousness that uh, we, we want to associate with here. Yeah, and then so did did the two of you ever like quit your day jobs and, and do this full time? Or is this still kind of a side hustle for you guys? Or when did that transition happen? Yeah, we're both full time now. Um, but we, we did keep, you know, luckily we had, um, very gracious and, and, um, 
accommodating bosses at the consulting firm and they were very yeah. much in the you know let's let's let people learn how to fly and go off and do their own thing so uh as far as an environment goes to keep your day job while you're trying to get something like this off the ground, we were very, very lucky. Um, but Evan, Evan has been full-time. Uh, it'll be two years for him in November and I will be two years in March of 24. Wow. And what was that like for you when you finally decided, all right, I'm going to kind of clip, clip the string that's attached me to the, for like a world, better term, the real world, right? Yeah. And uh, now move over to this side where, I mean, we're all in, right? And uh, yeah. if you're not gaming, you're not eating, right? So uh, yeah. how, how was that transition for you? Uh, man, that's a that's maybe a bigger question for me than you meant to ask. So feel free to stop me if I start going on too many tangents here. But I think, you know, there was kind of a, a stew of things that happened. So this started coming together for us during the pandemic when the, you know, the whole world's basically shut down. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think, as you know, board games kind of had a, a nice renaissance during that when people were stuck at home. You know, this was entertainment that could be delivered to your house and it's something new and interesting you could do. Um, and I think, you know, one of the bright sides for the people in our industry is is we benefited from that. It's kind of weird and awful to say, but it's true. Um, so our business picked up and, and, you know, our footprint got bigger and it got more financially stable. Um, you know, it, at the same time, we're all working from home. Um, and it's, it's kind of difficult and weird to do good consulting work in that situation. Like you need really need to go visit your client's offices and see how it works and yeah, kind of understand company dynamics. And, um, uh, that just got, I, you know, the consulting firm's still doing really well. Um, and I really admire the people who work there and the work they're doing, but it got really hard for me specifically, um, and a lot less fulfilling and enriching for me. Um, so, so that was kind of easy. And then kind of the, the real tipping point is our game ransom notes, um, uh, you know, was doing good business and then it started doing great business. Um, and it was like, you know, just blatantly obvious that this is too big and has too much momentum and we can't treat it like a side hustle anymore. Like this is a real business and a real job and, and we better, we better treat it as such. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes, uh, it goes from being a uh, a hobby to a job yeah yeah All right and that transition is um it, it's a shift right because you go from you know you know let's let's just make the best possible game we can make what you still want to do but at the same time you always have that little person in the back of your head saying okay but how are we going to make money at this right how are we going to make sure our sales are at a level that it justifies the economies we need uh, to make this thing um you know, be produced at, at the level we want to be produced. Especially when I look at a game like your most recent one, which we'll get into now, the, the Tiny Laser Heist, where, I mean, you've got, this isn't just cards in a box now, right? Like we're, we're now dealing with a custom design. There's plastic, there's string. Now you're getting into like safety testing and all this kind of, like it, it's a different ball of wax, right? And a game like that, you probably don't want to be producing small quantities of. You need to be producing large quantities of. Where did the idea of this this tiny laser heist coming from? Sure. So we keep a Google Slides document that's probably 80 slides long now. Um, and anytime either Evan or I have an idea for a game, and that can be the idea can be as simple as here's a cool name um, that kind of evokes what the mechanics and what the gameplay might be. We'll 
we'll put it on a slide. Or if we have an idea of what if we smash these two mechanics together, we'll put it on a slide. What if we did something that looked like this? We'll find some images on on uh, you know Google Images, or we've been using Midjourney AI quite a bit mm -hmm. um, to make images that are just like you know what if images. Um, and then in our development cycle, uh, you know we. When it's time to make a new game, which it'll be pretty soon, um, since Tiny Laser Heist is on Kickstarter and um, off and running, we'll start. We'll go back to that slide document. We'll, we'll we'll look at three to five that we're really interested in and think have potential, um, and we'll start cultivating those. Um, so specifically, Tiny Laser Heist, I uh, I had this idea for what if we we kind of took some of the activities and and certainly the spirit of of the Nintendo Switch game Mario Party. Mm -hmm. um and what if we we put it in meat space turned it analog um and you know the idea is obviously ridiculous because you'd need you know three thousand pounds of components and the box would be as big as a car and uh it would cost a billion dollars to make and two billion dollars to buy uh but the, but the spirit of you know kind of getting thrown together in different teams um whether you liked it or not and having to cooperate to move things from point a to point b um, you know, that's that's a lot of what the spirit of Mario Party games are. Mm -hmm. um, so we we kind of identified, well, that's what makes it fun. And now let's build out a game um, around those philosophies, even if it's not a Mario Party game. Uh, and obviously, you know, getting that license might be a bear. Um, but we also had a slide that's like, that, that basically just said, let's make a heist game someday. Uh -huh. And we're like, this is it. Like, let's, let's smash those two ideas together and, and maybe we have one. Yeah, it's cool. And then, so how did you come together with the, I'm showing on screen here for anybody that's watching live or on the replay, um, this kind of frame that you've got, and the lasers aren't actually lasers, they're like elastic bands or something, right, to represent lasers? That's right. Yeah. So how did you guys create that design? Did And, and what did that prototyping look like for you guys? Yeah, that's a good question. So historically, even with, with our previous game, Abduction, uh, we were able to find stuff at, at Lowe's or on Amazon that we could use for prototype pieces. Mm. Uh, but Tiny Laser Heist is unique enough uh, that I actually um, bought a 3D printer. Um, and to make prototype pieces, we you know we 3D printed a lot of, of original stuff. Um, for what it's worth, I hate 3D printing. It's uh, <laughs> sort of a necessary evil with where we are. I've got it going yeah. right now, actually. Um, but it's it's really hard and I don't like it at all. Um, and I bet people listening right now can relate to that. Um, anyway, that's not the question you asked. So uh, the woman we who did the industrial design for abduction on the, the spaceship, uh, she's done a bunch of other games, including uh, Wavelength. Is, is She made the gadget in Wavelength. And, you know, that's just Wavelength, I think, is one of the most brilliant games I've ever seen in my life. Um, so when we got introduced to her, we were really excited about working with her. Um, she did a great job with the ship. Um, and we went back to her with this idea. Um, and she just started doing the industrial design thing and making the STL files to make, you know, the, the frame has pieces that go this way and brackets that connect them here and um, slots to put in the lasers. And here's what the locks look like. And here's what the jewel looks like. And we just started moving them onto the 3D printer and, and hanging them out that way. And uh, we've got a couple fully functional prototypes um, and we've now moved into the stage where, you know, her job is largely done and we're working directly with our manufacturing partner who's going to produce this in mass to kind of do the fine tuning and polishing and on, on, on how the frame works and the lock sizes and all that good stuff. Yeah. 
And so when I look at a game like this, that is uh, so tactile, um, you know, clearly it's, it's designed, not uh, it's, I mean, it's very family, family friendly, I would say. Right. So you can play this with your kids, but you can also play with adults as well. Like, it seems like there's a lot of laughter to be had here, no matter kind of which age groups can be playing, because again, as you're saying, you're each have a hand that you're trying to, these little mini hands, you're kind of putting together to work together to try to lift things out of the, the, the thing. Can you describe to our audience kind of the essence of how to play this game for people that haven't seen the visuals or, you know, off hopefully afterwards they'll go and they'll check out your page and, and, and see them for themselves. So maybe you can just, you know, verbally describe kind of how to play this game. Yeah, sure. So Tidy Laser Heist is a uh, highly competitive, but um, unfortunately cooperative heist game where uh, the each player takes a turn as the mastermind and the mastermind administers each turn um, by recruiting their heist team. Um, quick note, we tried to take like the best thing about heist movies um, and, and figure out how to put it into the game. So uh, we've got to, we've got to put together our team and there's mechanics in the game that uh, kind of make it. So you sometimes have to work with people you don't want to, and you don't necessarily understand their motivation. Um, and then you make a plan for how you're going to steal a jewel out of this museum. Uh, and you do that by uh, there's a stack of padlocks on top of each jewel um, and the taller the stack, the more valuable that jewel is. And your team has 90 seconds to move all the padlocks off of that jewel and get the jewel onto the platform in the center uh, without tripping any of the lasers. Um, and if they do that, if your team does that successfully, uh, the master, you get a money card for uh, each of the padlocks you moved and it gets distributed to each of the heist team members based on the negotiations you had during uh, the recruiting phase. Um, so the the players to move the padlocks um, cooperate by using these tiny hands on sticks. Um, each player only has one, and you can only hold it with one hand. Um, and when when Evan and I first started doing this, we were we're kind of playing, um, you know, solo player versions, and we're like, man, this is way too easy. Um, and it was when you when you have two sticks and two hands in your own two hands. But as soon as you add somebody else and they can't like understand the micro decisions you're making in the moment. It gets way harder. Um, so the players have to kind of collaborate to grab these locks and move them on to a, another section. Um, and oftentimes a heist, you know, can take three or four, sometimes five players to actually get it done. Um, and the turns can really scale up well, um, anywhere from two to six players uh, might participate in any given heist, uh, depending on how complex it is and how, how difficult it is. And what I found interesting when I was reading through when you have the ability to kind of, I guess, get in on that particular heist, right? So you can verbalize, hey, I've got such and such cards, which are going to make this easier if you guys let me in on this, but I want kind of a piece of the action. So you got a little bit of a negotiation you can do there as well? Yeah, for sure. So the cards that you have to play in each round are the lockpick cards. So there's four mm -hmm. different colored locks. Um, and, uh, we're working towards like a three to two ratio, um, in your, in your five card hand, uh, where three of those cards at any given moment should be lockpick cards. So, uh, I might say I have a pink lockpick card, uh, and you might say I have a pink lockpick card. The mastermind says, all right, to pull off this heist, we need a green lockpick and a pink lockpick. I can bring the green. And so now the mastermind's down to deciding between the two of us. And James, you might say, I also have this extra time card. Um, 
So I, and I'll do it for one money at the end of the thing. So the mastermind's like, okay, cool. Let's go James. Um, but I might harbor a grudge on that. And and my next mastermind turn, I might remember that you guys left me out in the cold on that and decide not to pick you. Or James might again be the only person that has the right colored lock pick. So even though I don't want you to be on my heist team, I have to have you on my heist team uh, to go after okay. the largest value thing. So there's like that that collaborative tension uh, that I think we've really found a nice balance of that you see in heist movies uh, quite a bit. And when you trip these lasers, um, yeah. Is that just end the term? Is that just end that particular heist, or, or what, what's yep. the what's the impact? Yep. When you trip a laser, that's the only thing that instantly ends a turn. Um, so one of the ways the heist fails is tripping a laser. The other two ways that a heist can fail is if you don't get the pedestal uh, in onto the or I'm sorry, the jewel onto the pedestal uh, at the end of the ninety seconds, or if you've left any of the padlocks on the ground at the end of ninety seconds. So do you lose the cards you had kind of going into that that heist if a wire is tripped or is it just they move on to the next round altogether? Yeah. So if you if you committed um, in the example, I think I said a pink lock pick and an extra time, like if you committed those to the heist and you failed, those cards are gone. Mm. Um, but you do you get to draw back up at, at the beginning of your mastermind turn. So there's this element of uh sabotage in the game at all where it's like i that guy just committed a lot of cards i'm going to sabotage this on purpose so that their cards are kind of cooked and that puts me in a more advantageous position for later yeah so well there there there's kind not of that i would play that way but uh everybody plays that way james <laughs> um there's a there's a couple of different ways to to sabotage a game um you know, the, the most obvious is we have cards that are, that's all they do is their sabotage. So uh, one of Evan's favorites is called the one-eyed Jack, um, where you have to actually put on a burglar mask that comes in the game and you have to slip a card in between the mask and your eye. So now all of a sudden you're trying to do this heist with one eye, which, oh boy, you know, there was you your about optics, right? Yeah. yeah, makes it really, really hard. Um, so there's, there's sort of several of those where if you just want to make their life difficult, you can play those cards. Um, the other one is, um, you know, you could get on a heist team and intentionally fail it. Um, if you, you know, maybe you got the short end of the negotiating stick and you're only going to get one card and the mastermind's going to get three or four, um, and they've already got a tall stack of money. Maybe you just accidentally trip a laser, for example. The other one that I saw that was the most interesting way I've ever seen somebody play this so far uh, was at one of our play tests at a board game bar and during sort of the recruiting and planning stages of the game he would just get in the mastermind's ear and be like and and then i'll do this part and i'll take care of that part uh during the heist and um then when the money stuff came around he'd say he'd say stuff like oh and remember you said you give me one money card uh and they would do it and i didn't recognize until the end of the game this dude didn't actually play any cards he was just talking his way into these things and like talking his way into incentives. Um, but it was all smoke and mirrors and he never actually like played the game proper. Um, and, and one of the lines in the rule book is uh, you can, you can do whatever you can get away with in this game. The only thing that is sacred is you have to, you have to hold true to the agreements you made on, on how to split up the money. But after that, whatever, whatever is fair game. Oh, that's awesome. So acting like a true criminal. <laughs> yeah. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> so this plays three to six players, which I think is awesome because uh, more and more when I'm going to game nights, 
Um, I'm seeking out games that play at a higher player count. I'm just finding that, especially with meetups and so forth at local locations, right? There's always a moment where you got to have five, six people minimum in, in a game, just based on the way the, you know, the, the audience kind of splits up. So very cool to see that you guys have gone in that direction. Uh, I'm going to put this in Canadian dollars just because it's the only way I can see it quite frankly, but sure. you're at $113,000 on a $13,000 goal. So like he got 24 days ago, you smashed your, uh, your goal, right? Like 10 X already. And uh, you still got, your entire campaign to go. So congrats on that. You guys got to be just ecstatic on how, uh, how this is funded so far. Is it, is it hit kind of where you expected it would be a little bit better, uh, softer? Well, where, where are you at right now? Yeah, it's off to, it's off to a good start. I, you know, I think you, you have high hopes every time you hit launch on a Kickstarter. And uh, I think we're, we're kind of right on the line of where we would be happy uh, with, with how things are going. So not super ecstatic. This isn't a life-changing campaign necessarily, yeah. uh, but yeah. it's it's certainly good. And it's never lost on Evan and I um, that a lot of people make a lot of cool stuff that gets on Kickstarter and doesn't get the attention it deserves. Um, and we're we're very fortunate to be able to have, have done this again and and achieve what we've achieved with this one. Uh, so it, it's going well. Yeah, I always say like it's... Um no matter how good your, your campaign's going, you always want more, right? you always hope for more and hope for it to be bigger. Um, especially when you're doing this for a living, right? Like, because I mean, yeah. this is how you now eat, right? So of course you want it to be as big as possible. Uh, but part of that is even building up what I call the war chest for subsequent campaigns as well. Right. So it's not about, okay, just how you know can this fund and is this going to generate enough income for us but we actually need to account for even more income to then help fund the machine right and keep the machine churning out games going forward and it just takes one i think it was james hudson that actually said this at one point is most uh publishers are one bad campaign away from folding right like it really is like you have one dud and i mean that just drains your your war chest and then it's kind of starting back at uh from scratch trying to rebuild that you know, that buffer back up. So uh, as soon as you cross, I think the six figures, you know, within a couple of days, I think that's at the very least, maybe it's, you always want more, but at least you have a little bit of relief, I think, right. That a, we're not, we're not chasing a goal. Um, you know, this thing has got enough. Where we're going to have good economies of scale when it goes to, to manufacturing. Now let's just see how big we can make it. Right. Yeah, we're we're fortunate. We've got um, a game called Ransom Notes, which, yeah. um, long story short, is uh, 250 prompt cards that are just kind of ridiculous scenarios. Uh, one of my favorites is um, write the eulogy for your boss who you openly despise. Um, but it can also be stuff like uh, write a radio jingle for your toupee store. Um, write your grandma's Tinder bio. Just, you know, whatever Evan and I came up with when we were writing. Uh, and the players have to respond to these prompts the best they can with a word cloud of about 60 magnets, word magnets, um, that we put a lot of time and energy into getting right to make the, the game a, a nice balance. Um, and that one does really well for us online. Um, there's a there's a house party edition version of it in Target right now, which if you're not familiar, Target's big re retailer in the U.S. got about 1,900 stores. Um, so I, I, we're very lucky to be past the, you know, 
if if this Kickstarter campaign didn't go well, we wouldn't have to fold up shop. It would be devastating, um, but it wouldn't it wouldn't close the business. Yeah. Um, and we're we're lucky to be in a position where we kind of when you talked about uh, kind of a long tail and, and what's the scalability of something, we're kind of in a fortunate situation where we can take the the earnings from Kickstarter and we can just buy inventory with that. Yeah. Um, so now if we have, you know, three or 4,000 Kickstarters to fulfill, but we were able to buy 30,000 units of inventory. Now we've got 27,000 units that we could try to sell during the holidays into retail, all that stuff. Um, and we were able to jumpstart it with the Kickstarter campaign. Are you using distribution networks or are you selling direct or how are you guys reaching some of these big box stores? Yeah. The, the overwhelming uh, part of our business uh, is is e-commerce. Um, so mm. that's kind of important to know about very special games. Uh, but we do have a partner called PSI Publisher Services, Inc., um, who have been great about getting us in front of the buyers at Target and Barnes & Noble and Books A Million and Kohl's and kind of various others um, to, to help get our games on the shelves. And we've had some success with uh, Ransom Notes, Abduction, Puns of Anarchy, uh, and we're, we're in the middle of, we we rebranded one of our games. It's going to be called Vins with Benefits. Uh, that's going to be in some retail places as well. Uh, and like I said, PSI has done a great job uh, uh, growing us up in, in the retail space. No, that's amazing. What what comes next for you guys? So you're saying earlier, you go back to that, uh, that slides uh, presentation to kind of pick the next title. Have you guys already picked your next title or, or kind of where are you at for kind of what comes after this? <laughs> Yeah, so we'll we'll go back to the slides document. We'll try to find three to five that we wanna we wanna see if they're worth growing up, and uh, we'll try to get it on Kickstarter roughly this time next year, uh, with with any luck. Oh, nice. Well, I want to wish you all the best, Josh, on this campaign. I am so excited for you guys. It looks like so much fun. I, I saw in the in the uh, kind of lobby there people chiming in saying how much fun this game looks. So. Uh, I definitely can see the excitement around it and uh, I'm sure you're gonna be very happy with where this thing ends up. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. We're proud of this one. The play testers have been having a blast with it. And I, I really look forward to early next summer when we can get it in people's hands and, and start seeing the videos and getting the reviews. So thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, James. No worries. Take care, my friend. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.